Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. In the game of Climate Roulette, who wins and who loses? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Rising temperatures and seas will rebalance the planet's fortunes. Some parts of the world will see milder weather and economic gains. Others face sagging property prices and financial loss. So who will come out ahead? On today's program, we talk about the impacts of a warmer world on human health and migration, violent crime, food production, and wealth distribution. Going into the future, I think a real question on who wins, who loses, is how much climate change occurs. It's like taking from the poor, giving to the rich, and that's only within the U.S. If you zoom out and you go international, that pattern is only magnified. When we recorded this program, Catherine Mock was a senior research scientist at Stanford University. For five years, she co-directed the IPCC Working Group on Climate Impacts, Adaptation, and Vulnerability. And Solomon Xiang is Chancellor's Associate Professor of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. To illustrate the connection between hot weather and violence, Sean began with a scene from one of Shakespeare's most beloved tragedies. So Romeo and Juliet is a story we know as a conflict between two families. And the, the opening scene is, is Mercutio and, and his buddy are out. And they, they say, well, we should go to a bar. And his, his friend says, well, if we do, we're going to get in a fight because it's so, so hot today. And they're like, oh, we're going to go anyway. And they go and they get in a fight. And that's what the whole story is about. And so, you know, this is an intuition, this idea that the temperature affects our judgment and our ability to, our willingness to engage in violence. That's something that we've studied a lot in our research. And we see this over and over and again when we look at the data just around the world, throughout the United States, hot days, hot weeks, hot months are associated with higher rates of violent crime, uh, all types of crime, sexual assault, uh, regular assault, murder, um, Fights at baseball games. Fights, sorry, yeah, fights at baseball games, uh, road rage. It's like one of the most incredibly robust statistical findings I've ever seen. You can go anywhere in the world and, and you can see this in the data. So this is most clear and strongest at sort of the social level throughout the tropics in parts of the world where institutions tend to be weak, uh, households have fewer resources to cope. And so, you know, we think that part of the mechanism is that people's crops might fail and so they look for other types of opportunities. And someone might come through the community and say, oh, you can join my rebellion. And if we capture the oil fields, then you know, we get to pull in a lot of dough after that. 
And that becomes more appealing if your normal source of revenue is starting to break down, right? And so we think that might be one of the channels. The populations are also just moving around trying to cope. You know, it's never, it's never that great to have a lot of guys who aren't finding work in the fields, and so they come into the city and they're just hanging around unemployed. That's kind of like a recipe for mischief. If, if, you're, you know, if someone's trying to create mischief, that's a great environment for them. So, you know, we see these patterns everywhere. We haven't connected all the dots. We're still doing a lot of research to understand what's going on. But um, if you take the, the things we see today and we think societies in the future, a couple decades from now, are more or less going to be fundamentally similar to the way people today think, I would be concerned. I just think of the movies Dog Day Afternoon. You know, think of all the dramatic movies we've seen, whether it's a really hot day, you know, or even 12 Angry Men. Um, you've also done research about the cost of a hot day. It's like lighting money on fire. Tell us something about that. Yeah, so we, a lot of our work focuses on trying to understand the economic consequences of these types of extreme events or not so extreme events and thinking about how as the range of events that are experienced shifts in the future, how is that gonna affect you know, our pocketbooks? And so one thing we've done is we've looked in the United States and, and followed actually US counties over time and asked if I take a county and, and I heat it up a little bit more than it normally gets heated up, what happens to the people in that county? Do they earn more money? Are they suffering economically in some way? And what we found is that a hot day over the whole 24-hour cycle, if it's above 85 Fahrenheit, we see that people earn roughly $20 less at the end of the year. Okay, now that's just from the temperature. That's nothing else. That's not related to anything else. And that's per man, woman, and child. So the analogy is to say, okay, every time it's a hot day, I take 20 bucks and I just throw it away, right? Because I'm just not gonna earn that money at the end of the year. It starts to accumulate. And then you say, okay, well, next year is gonna be just hotter and hotter and hotter. And all that money that you could have been putting in the piggy bank, right, and accumulating interest over time, that's all gone. Catherine Mock, uh, tell us how hot it is today, 2018, and how hot is it going to get? Because that's, you know, how many $20 bills are we going to be burning? Great. So since pre-industrial times, when we really started turbocharging our emissions of heat trapping gases to the atmosphere, it's warmed globally in terms of the thin surface of the Earth, one degree Celsius. Going into the future, I think a real question on who wins, who loses, is how much climate change occurs. So with continued high emissions of heat-trapping gases, we're looking at the potential for four degrees Celsius temperature increase globally within this century. A key feature is that that type of warming puts humanity at risk of impacts that are severe, pervasive, and irreversible at the global scale. So this question of winners or losers, it really matters how much climate change we're talking as compared to reining in our emissions and limiting warming to 2 degrees Celsius under 4 degrees Fahrenheit. And so can you tell us, uh, this, can science tell us regionally which parts of the United States, and we all, all see these maps with those different colors of, you know, scorching red and, and purples, et cetera. Can science tell us what places are going to heat more than others? I think the spatial geographies of risk are really, really important, and Saul's work has been pivotal in taking that not just from the climate change indicator, whether it's temperature or temperature in combination with humidity, to what that means for people. But I think in terms of uneven risk, it's not just what the overall unevenness or unfairness looks like through space. We need to be thinking also about the most affected systems, whether that's coral reefs or archaeological remains being uncovered in indigenous villages in the Arctic or small islands 
islands going under. We also really need to think about extremes, which are unpredictable, kind of, except that there are these profound patterns. And if we think about the $300 billion in losses in the last year, there was unevenness there comparing Puerto Rico to Houston, for example. We'll get to some of that. Sal Xiong, uh, is temperature well, the biggest driver of, like, if, if, if people are thinking, well, I wonder if I'm going to be a winner or a loser, what's the key determinant of that? So there's, there's a couple factors. Um, when you're thinking about temperature, what we found, and it's kind of surprising, I think 10 years ago we didn't know this, but over and over when we look at the data, temperature is just a really important factor in looking at the economic productivity of agriculture, looking at crime rates. So you know, many people think, oh, it's just the temperature, but actually temperature affects everything. Now, the ways in which temperature affects things tend to have a shape that looks like a U. So if you know, we're looking at people getting ill, or maybe getting you know, going to the hospital. We see more people go getting ill when it's very, very cold, and then also when it's very, very hot. Okay, so being in the middle, and like being Goldilocks is great. You, that's the sweet spot. So what happens is the thing that really matters for whether you're a winner or a loser regarding temperature is what is your temperature today? If you live in an environment where it's like pretty, pretty comfortable, you're probably in the middle, and you won't be affected that much. But if you live in a place that's pretty hot, okay, so you live on you know, if you live in, in the South, for example, the Southern United States, it's already quite hot. Getting hotter days really harms you. If you live in the North, say you live in the Pacific Northwest or the Dakotas, then getting more warm days actually benefits you because you'll actually have fewer people getting sick, okay? And so what you have is you have a redistribution. Everyone sort of shifts to the right on this U-shape, and if you're coming down, you benefit. If you're going up, you get harmed. And so we, we, that ends up being basically a redistribution from the people who are hot today to the people who are cold today in the future. Does that you make know, sense? Sure, and then we'll, we'll get into some of those impacts in a minute. First, I want to talk a little bit about rising seas, another, another change. Some neighborhoods on Staten Island, New York, were almost wiped off the map by Superstorm Sandy. Afterward, Joe Tyrone Jr. helped organize a mass buyout of the Oakwood Beach community. Oakwood Beach is an area on the east shore of Staten Island. Many have described it as the epicenter of the storm, of Superstorm Sandy. The wave height was measured as, at around 15 feet. I had a, an investment property there. I had a one-family bungalow. I could have rebuilt again and out of my own pocket, um, but I didn't want to do that because the devastation was just incredible. The governor in his State of the State um, address announced that he was going to, he chose us as the pilot program for the buyout. What he did was he created an enhanced areas and we were enhanced because we were right on the shore and he felt that if he had a large participation that that would protect the inner portions of our neighborhood, you know, the inland portions. And so that we would act as a sponge, which is really basically what we at nature intended from the beginning, that we would be a sponge after Sandy, they weren't talking about climate change. They were just tired of their areas flooding constantly for whatever reason, whether it's climate change or not. Ultimately, the decision to leave was because they knew it was going to continue to happen. That was Joe Tyrone Jr. of Staten Island, New York. Catherine Mock, talk to us about that buyout program. Is, is that smart policy and is it scalable to buy out homes in harm's way? So what is a buyout? You know, the basic idea is that in a change in climate, people are on the move, right? And that can either happen automatically or we can be strategic. We can manage it. We can buy out properties. It's actually a surprising number of people who have retreated in a managed way globally given natural hazard risk to date. It's over a million. Here in the US, we've got two categories. Number one, the buyout program. 
45,000 properties approximately have been purchased at their pre-disaster value through this program to date. We're also just beginning community relocation with a Louisiana tribe, for example. And so some of the real questions around our buyout program is that it has been in the US the major way that we have gotten out of the way with what is called sometimes severe repetitive lost properties instead of cashing them in with flood insurance yet again, you just buy out the property. It's worked in that it has certainly been a way to reduce risk by getting assets out of a floodplain, for example. But it's not necessarily incredibly strategic in terms of how we might deal with 4 to 13 million Americans inundated through this century. For example, it is patchy. So if you have a floodplain that now has houses in half of the different locations, well, do you protect those houses with a seawall, which is actually what is underway in Staten Island in some dimensions of planning right now? Or do you actually recognize that to truly reduce risk by creating room for the river, creating room for the seas, we have to be more sweeping, recognizing that there are a whole lot of challenges and also opportunities around this type of adaptation. In South Seattle, it seems like there's certain parts. The New York Times did a, a big report recently about three states, I think it's Texas, Louisiana, Florida, where storms hit again and again and again, and taxpayers are sending tens of billions of dollars to the same states over and over again. Is that, how long can that go on? And is that a form of wealth transfer from other parts of the country? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, and that the question of how long it goes on is a question of how long people will keep buying our treasury bonds. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it all relies on the credibility of the federal government to, to pay money back. Uh, and so it, it's, it's completely unsustainable in the sense that, like, if I were a startup and I just said, like, oh, we just screwed up, I'm sorry, I just, I, like, lost the password to the bank account, so can we just have some more money, please? And then the VCs say, okay, here's some more money, and then we do it again, and then again, and again. After a while, you'd cut me off. You'd be like, this is ridiculous. We don't have that kind of market economy when we're thinking about interregional transfers. That's arranged through uh, an electoral system and, and politics, uh, and a lot of politics is about redistributing wealth, and so we often you know, think that when some community is harmed, we ought to go and help them. And that is for sure, I think, a core value in our society. I think we also have core values about sort of everybody pulling their weight. And I think what is challenging is to keep track of how many times one community has been sort of the beneficiaries and how many times other communities have been sort of paying for that to go in. And some people say, well, we should subsidize uh, you know, flood insurance, because some people just like they, they had this property, they didn't know that it was such high risk. Uh, and we have in the past actually tried to increase the premiums to make them fair so that people were paying for their fair share of the risk. And there was a lot of political blowback from from trying to do that. And, and what is really striking, I think, is that the regions that are going to be harmed tend to be parts of the country that have benefited a lot less from economic growth over the last several decades. And so they're the southeast parts of the U.S. are struggling in, in many places, um, whereas out here on the West Coast and the Pacific Northwest, there's been booming economies through technology and other industries, and those are the regions that are going to benefit. So it's like taking from the poor, giving to the rich, and that's only within the U.S. If you zoom out and you go international, the, the, that pattern is only magnified. So the places on this turning globe that are the, the most in danger um, is Africa. I mean, Africa is the place that um, 
has the fewest resources to, to cope and the, the weakest institutions to organize any type of adaptation. And so, you know, thinking about what's going to happen throughout the global tropics is the type of thing that really keeps me up at night. Catherine Mock, we're talking about the social cost of carbon. And so tell us about, you've done a lot of work on the impacts. Speak more to that inequity that's happening where the poor who contributed least are getting hit first and worst. Yeah, so this question, who's most at risk, it comes down to a lot of different factors. And I think one really important feature is that risk in a changing climate is not just about the climate. That human side of the picture is unbelievably important. So this inequity dimension plays out across scales. So number one, the huge inequities among countries of the world and the way that impacts that are happening in terms of impacts for food security or water insecurity or extremes will mean different things when you're in a low-income country context without the state support capacity there on the ground or the level of economic development to keep things chugging ahead. But I think this question of inequity is also really, really important. What a lot of social scientists like to say is that, first of all, not all poor people are vulnerable and not all vulnerable people are poor. And the flip side of that is that wealth is not necessarily protection. So so if we think about what's unfolded here in the US, whether it's the fires in Northern California, Sandy in 2012 in New York City, or all of the cyclones striking the Gulf Coast over the past year, even within a city going block to block, you can have very different outcomes depending on for, are the elderly and infirm, are the people who are most marginalized able to access resources from cooling centers to medical attention when systems start to fail in tandem. And some of those systems to the point of, of breaking down, uh, Catherine Mock, we've seen uh, it's so hot in Phoenix that airplanes could not take off. It gets so hot uh, that train tracks, subways have to have to slow down. At what point are we going to get to, to uh, infrastructure just literally melting? Melting or collapsing. I think there are many profound ways where we have built our societies for stasis and stability, and now we're in an environment of change. So what does that look like across the US? In Alaska, for example, the ground is melting, right? The permafrost is thawing, and whether it's pipelines or roads or buildings, literally the ground is collapsing. And that's something we can see already. There are astounding pictures of buildings tipping into the sea as you have the Arctic sea ice thawing, waves coming on shore. I think this question of heat is a really important one in that we certainly haven't designed everything for 118 degrees Fahrenheit in Arizona come July, what have you. And that plays out in many profound different ways, in particular in these environments where we've got transport in tight interconnection with electricity, in tight interconnection with communications. And when you get a failure in one of those, oftentimes it reverberates. So let's talk about some of the winners. Canada, Russia, who are the winners? Yeah, there are, I mean, it, there are a lot of countries uh, where we see that their economic growth would accelerate if they were a little bit warmer. You know, uh, it's, uh, I don't know how many people have ever, like, spent a lot of time shoveling their driveway. Uh, but we do spend a lot of resources trying to cope with the cold as well. And so there are many parts of the world where if you get a little bit warmer or if you get a little bit more rainfall, a little less rainfall, you actually can take those resources that you were spending on, you know, shoveling your driveway or, or paying someone to plow it, and you can invest those in something much more productive. So there are people who are going to benefit. So Although that, that is productive if you're the guy shoveling the snow. But yeah, yeah that's so. true. <laughs> uh, and so, so you know, we, we see places in northern Europe, um, Russia, as you say, uh, northern northern central Eurasia, and and Canada. These are the types of countries that could actually benefit from some amount of warming in terms of sort of increasing economic growth and economic productivity. The U.S. is really split down the middle. So basically half the U.S. is harmed 
a quarter of the U.S. benefits. And so the U.S. on net kind of is harmed, uh, but not as dramatically as, as places further south than us. Any indication that people are moving yet as an anticipation of this? Are people moving out of the south? It may be hard to say that it's because of heat or climate, but boy, 118 uh, degrees in Phoenix sure makes you wonder how long that can go on. So, so actually, when we look at the data historically, we've seen a lot of people moving around and migrating in response to climatic events that they're experiencing. Now, whether or not it's Human-caused climate change is a different question that's sometimes harder to detect, but I think everyone in the United States is very familiar with the Dust Bowl and what happened in this country. We had uh, huge parts of this country basically evacuated and people pushed into the cities, labor markets became flooded with, with a lot of extra people at the same time that we had an economic downturn. It was a very difficult situation to, to cope with, and, and having lots of people moving is, is, is very difficult. It puts a strain on society and the structure of different markets. So we've seen similar patterns. We've done research in Indonesia where we see the same thing. When there's communities that have been exposed to a long sequence of hot years and a lot of crop failures, the families pick up and they move to the city. Uh, so the question is, as you repeat this over and over, what do we end up seeing? Uh, you know, there's a lot of movement out of northern Africa right now and across the Mediterranean into Europe. And, and when we talk to policy folks in Europe, they're very concerned about this. Uh, this part of the world is, is very heavily exposed to, to warming temperatures. They don't have a lot of water resources. And, and when people start moving, it's very hard to say no. Um, and it's also very hard to support them. So neither option um, is great. It'd be great if people were just able to take care of themselves at the standards we would hope. Catherine Mark, you know, is, is climate migration, climate refugees, is that something you've encountered in your IPCC working group? Is that something that's, that's notable? Because other people, we've actually had David Miliband, head of the International Rescue Committee, on this stage saying it's not a big deal, that, it's, that we don't, there are no climate refugees yet. So on the climate issue, there has been increasing attention to all these different dimensions of human security. And I think migration is a particularly interesting one in there. You started with conflict. Mm -hmm. But migration, first of all, is interesting because we see tons of migration throughout the world today. Sometimes it's politically driven. Sometimes it's economically driven. If it is economically driven, it is usually good for the people who are moving. It's good for the host populations who are, are the recipients. And oftentimes, there's money going back home as well. So in general, moving can be a really good way to deal with hard times. And some of the real questions moving forward is, A, how much faster and bigger will these migration flows get? If it is North Africa cruising into Europe, do we have the institutions at the global scale to deal with that? Second, there's actually a really important question around trap populations. So if migration is a good way to get to that place in the US where you could be better off economically, but you are too poor to be able to implement that move for your family, there are really important questions of equity that come into play, not just in terms of who is forced to move, but who is not able to move and would like to. If you're just joining us, we're talking about climate winners and losers at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests are Catherine Mock, a senior research scientist at Stanford University, and Saul Xiang, a professor at the University of California at Berkeley. We're going to go to our lightning round and, and ask quick questions for our two guests. Uh, the first is association. I'm going to mention a, a phrase or a noun and just get the first thing that pops into your mind unfiltered with complete disregard and reckless professional abandon for what is coming into your mind. So, uh, Catherine Mock, what comes to mind when I say South Florida? Flooding. New Zealand. Earthquakes. Saul Xiang, uh, 
people buying waterfront condos in Miami today? Gambling. Salxiang, people selling waterfront condos in Miami today? <laughs> Risk averse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, true or false, uh, Catherine Mark, uh, warmer temperatures and less dense air may be related to a surge in home runs in Major League Baseball. True. Very interesting debate online. If you're a sports fan, check that out uh, about the home runs and air density and, uh, and warmer temperatures. Uh, true or false, Sal Xiang, Wall Street banks are figuring out ways to make money on climate-driven volatility. Definitely true. <laughs> uh, true or false, Catherine Mock, uh, many natural scientists need to learn how to speak plain English. True. Salshang, so do many economists. For sure. <laughs> also for Saul, uh, a true or false, economists are people who don't have the personality to be accountants. <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> All right, that ends our lightning round. Let's give them a round for getting through the gauntlet there. So I want to ask you to drill a little bit into the human health consequences of a warmer world. What are we looking at in terms of human health? What's, what's happening there? So there's a, there's a huge number of researchers in public health who've thought about this for a long time. I think there's so many ways in which the environment uh, affects people's health. I mean, there's obviously people who are you know, hit by storms. There's also people who suffer from heat stroke when it gets hotter out. And the diseases that are carried by other organisms, ma malaria, dengue, these sorts of diseases end up propagating through communities much faster when the species that carry the disease between individuals, in this case mosquitoes, are doing better. So in the U.S. right now, we're concerned about Lyme disease because ticks are taking off. And it doesn't, it never helps to make things a lot hotter. The one case in which it does benefit some communities is you have uh, the communities where Places where people are really cold, and so elderly folks often will get the flu or the pneumonia in the winter, and uh, that can be fatal. So we see fewer people dying of those types of uh, deaths at the, in the colder parts of the country. And then there's all sorts of risky behavior we observe. So there's been a lot of research, for example, in Africa. Uh, in communities, when they're facing drought conditions, we observe uh, a lot of women engaging in much higher rates of transactional sex. And that leads to higher rates of HIV transmission. Uh, so these types of sort of social dynamics interacting with the health environment, interacting with the physical environment, uh, make it a really complicated challenge for the healthcare system to cope with. I've heard lots of climate connections, but that's the first time I've heard the climate AIDS connection. Uh, Catherine Mock, pick us up here. What, what, where's, where's the bright spots? What, what, what are some good things that are happening? Well, I think on this theme of winners and losers, we need to talk about responses and that we're seeing profound wins in that space in the world right now. You can take Saul's maps of what's happening county by county in the US and plop on top of that where we're seeing bigger deployments of renewables, for example, and the Great Plains regions running from Texas to North Dakota. Some of the biggest production of wind energy is happening in that belt. Here in California, obviously, we love talking about how ambitious we are and all the progress we're seeing. And maybe the last point I'll emphasize on the adaptation side of the equation is that all of these risks tie to everything we care about. So oftentimes there are real win-win entry points where, yes, it's about developing and making people well off economically. Yes, it's about 
directing our attention to the climate dimension of that, and we get wins across them in ways that our investments can mean more in total. It's also food production. Is it true that you know that the Corn Belt's going to move up into to Canada, Catherine Mock? You know, food production. Will there be some winners where some crops can grow in certain areas where they didn't grow before, or is there is it more complicated the the, the balance of food production? So we're already seeing impacts on agricultural production globally and certainly in the US. And I think what Saul's work, what others work in the agricultural impact space is really driven home is that the bands of temperature as they shift, as also there's precipitation changes, changes in ozone, all these other things that affect production, the major places where we may be most able to be productive agriculturally likely will be shifting. I think there have been some interesting ways where we already see early winners or at least uh, people with good foresight in terms of wine moving north. There is a great example of transformational adaptation that's moving peanuts in Australia. But I think some of the real questions are how fast will we be able to move these industries? Will we create winners and losers in terms of the big companies able to shift their supply chains readily at the same time that people on the ground in small communities in Africa or small rural communities in the southeast in the US, for example, can't as readily make those types of rather dramatic fast adjustments? And Saul Shang, I was recently in Walla Walla, Washington, which is uh, where grapes are moving up there from California. It's like Napa was 30 years ago. And I thought, well, you know, the big companies can buy grapes from wherever, but it's the it's the farmers who are stuck with the land. So it, I want to get to the corporate adaptation and, and corporate supply chains. If they're kind of seeing these trends and kind of moving ahead and, and either moving operations or adapting their supply chains to these these changes. I think they do that. They do that right now. I mean, when when we have uh, hurricanes striking parts of the country and they're moving resources around, trying to cope. Um, I think strong firms will often do that, and we see that the firms that are also diversified geographically in such a way that they can actually move resources between regions are much more robust. You know, local mom and pop stores in New Orleans, a lot of them are gone, and they they've never come back. Um, so I, I think you know the diversification and the ability to cope sort of um, is a really strong predictor of, of firm performance in the long run, just in general, under all sorts of types of volatility. And then thinking about risk as a dimension of volatility that they have to cope with is something that's really pervading, I think, a lot of leadership in firms right now. There's a lot of organizations that are trying to understand what is their exposure and what do they need to do to prepare so that they can be resilient in that way. Another example of how those with wealth and resources are better situ situated to adapt to this. But on what happens after hurricanes, tell us there, there's some myths and, and uh, realities, Sal Xiang, about what happens after a big hurricane. How, who moves out? Who stays? What happens to the economy after a Katrina or a Maria or a Harvey? We see a lot of things happen. You know, the, the most obvious thing is a lot of stuff gets broken, gets destroyed. Sometimes people will move out. Sometimes, because it's not as nice of a living environment, property prices actually fall, and we see lower-income communities move in. Uh, families are moving in, taking advantage of the lower prices. Often people say, oh, well, we should you know, buy stock in Home Depot or something because there's going to be a construction boom. There is often benefits in the construction sector, but the losses in other sectors of the economy overall outweigh the benefits in construction. So local economies do tend to suffer, and in many cases, they suffer for over a decade. So you know, after a storm hits, you often hear a mayor come out and say, we're going to build back better, stronger than we were before. Now, that may be true, but they don't usually tell you on what timeline. 
right? So it is in it is, their term while they're in office. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, San Francisco today looks a lot better than we did right after the earthquake, but it took decades to get where we are, right? And so what happens is you have you have a community and they're on some sort of economic trajectory. They get hit by a storm and they get knocked down to a lower trajectory. And so they they do continue to grow eventually. They do continue to benefit. Uh, but it takes them a lot longer, and they never get to where they would have been. You know, I think you know we ask the question. People say, "Oh, New Orleans is doing great today." But a question you can ask is, "What would New Orleans look like today if Katrina had never hit?" And that's just—it's a world that's so different from the one we're in that it's even hard to imagine. But it would have been a very different place. I promise you that for sure. So um, we also see a lot of losses because people lose their jobs. We see higher rates of un unemployment in these communities, and then they end up calling on benefits from the government. So a lot of people have unemployment insurance payouts. And so we as taxpayers end up paying for these storms much, much more than the bill you see coming from FEMA, because we actually pay more in unemployment benefits than to the direct disaster relief right afterward. Catherine Mock, uh, isn't a warmer climate going to make oil and gas resources much more accessible in certain areas and therefore benefit uh, oil drilling in the Arctic, northern Canada, etc.? They're really interesting questions about what happens to the nature of extraction as the Arctic warms. So the Arctic in general is changing very fast, very profoundly in terms of sea ice that is melting, permafrost that is thawing, and temperature deviations that are just astounding. Part of that is now water that used to be frozen over all the time in terms of sea ice almost year-round or for much of the year is now passable in almost every season. So we're starting to have questions arise of what does that mean for shipping? What does that mean for oil and gas extraction, including around Greenland, which is so susceptible to massive loss over centuries of emissions of heat trapping gases. And that's all in juxtaposition with these ecosystems that are so sensitive to change and indigenous communities dependent on them. So this question of what happens to the Arctic is really wide open. And we have some really important questions, not only about do we extract, but what about all these pipelines that are on permafrost that is melting? If you're interested in more about that, we did a podcast from the Arctic. I uh, was up there on a ship and spoke with the former prime minister of Greenland. It's called a deep dive in the Arctic. And they talk about the Northwest Passage and what that means for they're kind of they're torn because there's economic opportunity. But they're also worried about the cultural impacts and, and all, what, what it means to have that Northwest Passage. Um, Saul Xiong, air conditioning, you know, changed America. Uh, you know, that's now uh, available to the most people in the middle class. How is that going to help. Uh, seems like one answer to this is more air conditioning, right? You know, put in bigger air conditioners. How's that going to be a positive feedback loop? And where else could that energy go? We, we, uh, we're concerned about that. And I think many people are thinking, trying to understand how increasing energy demand might actually accelerate things. There are, you know, many parts of the world. I mean, San Francisco is one of them where there's not a lot of air conditioning. Uh, but there are many parts that are of the world that are very, very hot locations where there's not much air conditioning. And it is really important that those communities do eventually get access to air conditioning. It, air, air conditioning saves people's lives. Uh, it dramatically increases the productivity of people who are working. It increases cognitive function. It increases the quality of life. So it's really important that people get access. It's also important that we find ways to power air conditioning systems around the world that don't necessarily involve just combusting fossil fuels. 
I do think that sometimes when I talk to people and we talk about air conditioning is thought of as, as a way to adapt to the climate. And people often say, well, we're just going to come up with awesome technologies like we came up with air conditioning. And, and when we, I engage people on that, I often point out, you know, we actually know how to keep people alive in space. Like we can actually keep, that's a very hostile environment, much harder than, you know, California with, with a few degrees of warming. So we can keep people alive in intense environments, but it's absurdly expensive. And so we could in the future, you know, all walk around in spacesuits if the environment becomes really hazardous, but we're not going to have any resources left over to do anything else when, when we're in the spacesuit, right? So we can adapt for sure. But the question is whether or not that's the way we want to spend our money or do we want to do other things besides adapt. Catherine Mock, the climate conversation grew out of chemistry and physics, you know, the natural world, these sort of alarm systems, red lights flashing. And increasingly, the social sciences have become more part of the conversation. Why isn't the human brain responding to these flashing red lights? Why isn't society doing more? I'd like to hear your thoughts on the social sciences coming to this climate conversation that was for so long has been chemistry and physics. Yeah, so if it were as easy as understanding the physics, we definitely would have solved this challenge already. The first estimates of climate sensitivity, how much warmer the planet gets for doubling CO2 in the atmosphere, were made in 1895, approximately. So we haven't solved it yet. So why is it hard? There are a lot of different entry points. I think, first of all, we have to recognize that climate touches everything we do. So oftentimes people will point to the Montreal Protocol and it's chugging along with quite a lot of progress in terms of solving the ozone depletion challenge. But climate change is harder, right? Because it comes down to this question of how do we develop in every low-income country around the world. If we were to say, let's drop our emissions to zero tomorrow, well, we'd need to turn off these mics, those TVs, you'd all need to get rid of your iPhones. Luckily, mine is off stage. It's not something that is an easy challenge to solve because energy and land use are so embedded in our human experience. So some of the solutions are, first of all, from the social science angle of psychology and how people interact with risk and how to communicate effectively. I think there are lots of themes that are as simple as hope, not fear, unexpected messengers, driving connections to the issue, not just having it be abstract, off in the long term, and all about the doom of humanity. There are a lot of other dimensions of the social science perspective that have been all about understanding what is vulnerability, what is susceptibility to harm, and all of the different ways we construct that ourselves, recognizing that this is a fabulously rich issue, and basically no discipline is left behind in terms of understanding how all of the different pieces come together. Together. So how do you personally, Catherine Mock, deal with that hope and doom? Because you're in the business of looking at some pretty dark models, and sometimes uh, scientists can kind of go to the dark side staring at the, you know, the, the doom. How do you manage your own personal balance between that hope and fear? So the dorky introvert answer would be that I love the complexity of this issue, that being engaged really passionately with something that involves understanding so many features of the human experience is riveting on a daily basis. I think the, the response of a citizen and how I think about the long-term persistence of humanity, I guess I have faith in the fact that we're really good at muddling through, and I think at some point we're going to start to see bangs in terms of innovation, things getting easier as we start to decarbonize. So I think there are a lot of reasons to have hope at the same time that you can't get around the fact that the risks are serious. And that means something to me, even as a scientist in my dorkiest, most introverted moments. We're talking about uh, climate winners and losers with Saul Xiang, professor at UC Berkeley, and Catherine Mock from Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. 
Hi, Tarek Makacha. Um, so you both discussed uh, developing nations potentially suffering from climate change. I'm curious, what actions do you propose developed nations take, and what role do you think climate change has on international security and geopolitical stability? Uh, it's Something. definitely not going to make things more stable. Um, I mean, it's true. I think like it's very hard to predict exactly what will happen. If you look in the historical record, there are a lot of um, old political institutions, civilizations, communities that collapsed during periods of major climatic shifts. So Angkor Wat in, in Cambodia, um, the Akkadian Empire in modern-day Syria, the Mayan Empire in Central America. Almost every uh, Chinese dynasty throughout Imperial China collapsed during, during periods of drought. So we have a lot of records of institutions breaking down in these, in these periods, and, and I think that's the thing that I'm most worried about. It is when, when political institutions, governments fail, we know that failed states are some of the most difficult things to put back together. Uh, it takes decades. And so if we're doing anything, even if it's only incrementally increasing risk of failure for a dozen states by 10%, that is a tremendous cost uh, to humanity, I think. Uh, and so that's the type of thing that is the most concerning to, to many of us in the research community. Especially in these times. Let's go to our uh, next question. Welcome. Hi, uh, my name's Tom McCone. Uh, I'm from UC Berkeley, also a School of Public Health. Uh, in the IPCC, there was discussion about uh, reaching physiological limits in many areas of the world, particularly for workers. And if you think about it's not just airplanes can't function, but we have a situations where whole working populations can't even work outdoors for a large amount of time because they're at their physiological limit. They basically, you, you alluded to this, that they'll have to wear spacesuits or some other thing just to function. So what are some of the economic or even cultural implications of when that starts happening? And we're not very far from seeing that happen right now. They're starting to harvest crops in California at night because it's too hot in some places in the day. Who'd like to tackle that, Catherine Muck? Both probably could. So I think this question of when do we hit limits where we just can't cope biologically is unbelievably important to consider, both in terms of kind of a fine scale winners and losers question and also broad patterns. So in terms of this fine scale question, indeed, outdoor workers are particularly susceptible to the impacts of heat, in particular in combination with humidity. Those are not just people picking fields. It's also how do we maintain our infrastructure, including infrastructure in the midst of a heat wave, for example, where if we have electricity outage, we need to get out there. It may be a future where we have to do that in spacesuits, but that's unbelievably expensive compared to the way things work right now. There are also these questions of what happens as some of the dynamics of the atmosphere change and shift regional patterns. For example, in the Middle East, there have been some really profound studies of just how hot and uninhabitable some of those regions could be. They're already incredibly reliant on air conditioning, of course, but that's also in combination with increasing desertification, so essentially more dust in the air, air quality impacts that will be exacerbating in tandem. A lot of these things come down to real questions of how can we deal with this in terms of our health, in terms of our hearts, our lungs, and also just our physiology so that we don't get heart attacks and heat strokes. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you, and thanks for the conversation. Um, I've been studying climate change for a while, and uh, I am a homeowner in Florida. And uh, so I've done a lot of study, and the rate of change is uh, local. Your ability to cope is local, looking at the age of this population. The next 20 years are going to make a really big difference. Um, 
there's drawdown technologies. I'm, I'm a technical person myself, and I've, I've been looking at a lot of the 101 solutions, and I'm just wondering what you think, what you see on a global basis of the ability to the globe to become vegan and have less children and draw down technologies as opposed to the massive oil drilling that's going on. Catherine Mock? We want to be really simple about the climate challenge. We just say this is a question of can we have the same level of economic well-being that exists in high-income countries in the world right now and not be reliant on heat-trapping gases. So the easy entry point is that let's say that this in many ways is an engineering challenge. By no means is it only an engineering challenge, but some of these questions are really just what is the next technology on the horizon in terms of piecing together clean energy with storage, with dealing with the periods where the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. That said, that certainly isn't the entire picture, and there are a lot of really easy places where we could just use a lot less heat-trapping gas in our daily life. So what do we eat, for example? That's incredibly important. For buildings, there are many places where we would save money if we had better insulation. That can be hard to install if you've got a beautiful old city, but certainly where we're putting up new construction, that is easy win-win type of investment. And then the final piece of the equation, I think, is really getting to the drawdown point. Can we remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere? That's an critical piece of our climate response equation, one that I've been thinking about passionately in terms of the full spectrum of how that sp spans from biological to engineered approaches, but it's not one where we can rely on that in its entirety, in particular if we don't decarbonize our energy sector. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, thanks. My name is Jean Clinton. Um, I think some of the adaptation we're going to see is going to be sort of natural through markets and economics, but uh, what are your thoughts on specific areas that you think Congress or the president need to focus on in terms of interventionist strategies to help mitigate or manage the adaptation, be they agricultural, economic development, social? You know, what would be the priorities for national attention to help manage this transition? Salshaw? I mean, I'd say to cope with uh, adaptation, we should really think about the issue that was raised in the beginning, which is the question of whether we are going to subsidize uh, environmental risk. I think right now there are just a lot of incentives for people to go and live in risky places and adopt risky attitudes. In economics, we call that moral hazard. It's like people sort of behaving more risky because they have great health insurance. So if I break my arm, it's okay. Someone will fix it for me. We have that situation right now, and that leads to a lot of additional risk-taking. If people have to face the risks and the consequences of the risks they take, then they're going to pull back. They're going to drive their car a little slower. They're going to be a little more careful. And so I think that would be number one. Uh, number two would actually be creating incentives to not use more hydrocarbons, to put a, a tax on carbon. Because if you don't do that, there's a lot of ways we can adapt to the climate that involve just using more carbon using more energy. And so that's going to come back to the other issue we raised before, the positive feedback of people just making the problem worst when trying to cope with it. So doing those two things, making the markets in greater alignment with the public benefit um, would be the two things I would focus on. So as we wrap up, what gives you hope about climate change? What gives you hope that we can do this, get it done? Solomon Schaum first. Uh, I think... That we, you know, it is, it is rough to be talking about violence and conflict and economic decline. Uh, but this, I, I say to people, I point out, this is the, the first time in human history that we've had the types of scientific and analytical tools that we can actually have this dialogue 
before something happens. In the past, we talked about you know, Angkor Wat or Mayan civilizations. There were leaders that were relying on fortune tellers or like rolling dice to try and figure out, like, should I make this call or, or a different call? Uh, now we can actually use science and data, talk to one another, try to understand our values about the future, uh, and come to some consensus about what it is we want to change about the way we live. And, and this, is, this is a revolution. This has never happened in human history before. Uh, so it's really great and incredible to be part of this, this discussion. So data will prevent us from going off the cliff or at least help us understand what's going on as we go off that cliff. <laughs> um, Catherine Mock, what gives you hope? So most people don't wake up in the morning and have the first thing that pops to their mind be climate change and that they care about climate change. Saul and I might be in the real minority on that issue. But I think the really compelling thing about the climate issue is that there are a whole bunch of different reasons why people are leading and why they will continue to lead. Those come down to things like leadership, creating yourself as a winner, as California is doing, as China is doing, and that's really paving the way for so many people who come in the path behind it can be about air quality and human health. It can also be just about immediate economic interests. Most states in the U.S. that are profoundly productive in terms of wind and solar energy are at this point doing it for the basis of economics, not necessarily because they're waking up in the morning and thinking about climate change. We've been talking about winners and losers in a warmer world. That was Catherine Mock senior research scientist at Stanford. After we recorded this conversation in 2018, she moved to the University of Miami, where she will study climate impacts up close. My other guest today on Climate One was Solomon Xiang, Associate Professor of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review on your favorite podcast app. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>